Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armaso. Our guest today is Andrew Lerner, managing partner of IA Capital Group, a New York-based private investment firm that's dedicated to partnering with innovative entrepreneurs in venture and growth capital across insurtech and fintech. Andy has been at the company since 1995 and is responsible for the day-to-day activities of IA Capital. He's also a member of its investment committee. He holds a bachelor's in electrical engineering and computer science from Princeton University and an MBA in finance from our amazing Wharton School. We talked about Andy's background, what drove him to fintech venture capital over two decades ago, his take on the evolution of the fintech industry all the way since the 90s, the advantages of being in an industry with meaningful tailwinds, why he's excited about insurtech for the foreseeable future, the importance of financial empowerment, along with diversity and inclusion, and why he prefers backing young entrepreneurs and thinks experience is overrated, and a whole lot more. Now join me in a fascinating conversation with Andy Lerner. Well, welcome, Andy. Uh, Welcome to the Awards and Fintech podcast. Very, very excited to have you here, uh, not just because of your outstanding background, but also because you are an alum of Wharton. So we're always extra excited to have an alum. Can we get started by maybe hearing a bit about your background? Sure. Absolutely. Happy to be here on the podcast. My name's Andy Lerner. I grew up in uh, suburbs in New Jersey, suburbs of New York City. Went to college in New Jersey and, and Princeton. Worked for a couple of years in investment banking in Smith Barney, merged with Solomon Brothers, then became part of Citigroup, so part of Citigroup today. Went to Wharton for grad school, class of uh, 91, studied finance more than anything at Wharton. And I was a computer science undergrad at Princeton. And then I went back to Smith Barney after business school so I didn't have to go through the whole job search that a lot of a lot of uh, Wharton MBAs go through, and worked there for another three and a half years, and then worked uh, continuously at IA Capital for the last 25 years. So IA stands for Inter-Atlantic, where venture capital firm focused on fintech, insurtech within the fintech sector. So that fits well with my background, having degrees in tech and fin, <laughs> it fits quite well. And I run the firm. I'm the managing partner. We're based in New York City. IA Capital stands for Inter-Atlantic. So sometimes you Google us and our investments are under the Inter-Atlantic name. Sometimes we're under the IA name, but it's the same firm. You know, happy to dive in uh, about what we do and what I'm seeing. But uh, my work history is pretty boring. Only two places in my career. I should say early on at, at IA Capital, we were affiliated with Guggenheim Partners, which is a big investment bank but that we separated from them many years ago. But I've really only worked at at two firms in my career. So Andy, it's interesting because IA has been uh, focused on the VC space for a long time, probably longer than most. What brought you in the first place to the firm, particularly in the mid-90s? I think that a few different reasons we became investors in fintech. One, it fit well with my background. Second, we started out making venture capital investments and we still do today make, say, three to $7 million average size investments. And I had a background in financial institutions. That was the group I worked in. I worked in the FIG group at Smith Barney. 
but three to five million or three to seven million dollars doesn't move the meter in a traditional financial services firm. You're not really going to invest in a bank that has you know, national aspirations to make a five million dollar investment. But in fintech, that goes a long way. It even goes a longer way today than it did 20 years ago with software and cloud services. You can build a lot of tech with a few million dollars. Uh, so it fit well. And this might seem like ancient history, but one of the reasons I went into fintech was environmental reasons. And back in the old days, you'd put canceled checks on a plane and you'd have to fly them to the originating bank. And it's just a tremendous amount of paperwork was involved. And it just seemed logical that technology was going to be the future of financial services. And one of the many reasons why would be to cut down on the tremendous amounts of paperwork that was used to be part of the industry. So definitely early, not just for VC, but fintech. How about over the last couple of decades, has the industry evolved in a way that you would have predicted? Has it surprised you? Yeah, I mean, I think part of being a good VC is to pick a areas where there's a rising tide. I mean, not everybody is going to get lucky every time on picking a great company, but you can be in an industry that you think has a lot of uh, tailwinds. So fintech has always been like that. But within fintech, there's a lot of different subsectors, and we've been more active in the past in some areas. Payments has been a great area for us for many, many, many years. And we were very early investors in the payments sector and had many IPOs years ago. And then for the last six or seven years, we said, well, what area within fintech is going to be the next payments to take off? And we decided on insurance technology. The banks for a couple of decades have really invested tremendous amounts into technology and banks like Chase are considered a leader in technology, but that wasn't the case with insurance companies. They were really all laggards in technology. So we still make payments investments and other fintech investments. But today, where majority of our investments are insure tech focused. And there are a lot of fintech VC firms out there, and we're probably, you know, typical size. But within insure tech, we're just about the largest. We certainly have longest track record, most experience, but I think we're just about the largest uh, that focus on insure tech as number one investment thesis. Do you think your portfolio going forward will continue to be focused mostly on InsureTech? And maybe within InsureTech, are there specific areas that you guys are most excited about? For the foreseeable future, InsureTech, you know, for example, there was an IPO of an InsureTech company called Lemonade in July, and it has about a two and a half, three billion dollar market value today. And it's known as one of the most prominent InsureTech companies. But compare that to PayPal, which has a $220 billion market value. I mean, that's the leading payments companies are about a hundred fold in value versus InsureTech. So it kind of shows the potential of InsureTech. So we think there's a great room for InsureTech companies to run over the next several years. And because we've become sector experts, we've attracted limited partners that really care about the industry. So today, most of our limited partners are insurance companies they are very knowledgeable about the sector, but they don't have day-to-day venture capital teams internally. So they look to us to make venture capital investments for them, but also to give them insights on what's happening in insurance technology. So today we work for we invest on behalf of 15 different insurance companies. And they they care first and foremost about financial returns, but they also care a lot about 
our strategic insights into InsureTech. On your question within InsureTech, about 70% of the activity is in property casualty insurance. So that's auto insurance, homeowners, workers' compensation, and about 30% is life and health related. So life insurance, health insurance, disability insurance. I personally think there's a lot of opportunity in areas that are maybe overlooked by millennials or Gen Z. So retirement products, long-term care, annuities. These are products that are not on the radar screen of a 25-year-old, but are really ripe for uh, technological innovation. So if I were giving advice to somebody that's looking for a career in insurance technology, I would say, don't be the 30th company to focus on pet insurance. Be the first company to focus on annuities or or long-term care, because really people of all ages are engaging on the internet and buying products of the internet. It's, It's not just young people today. Yeah, no, 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 that that makes sense. You had to look where the tailwinds are, but also have a balance of now where maybe the, the tide has already reached momentum, right? So I was looking through your website and one of the values that you state is financial empowerment along with diversity and inclusion. What does this mean to you? Yeah, it's a great question because it can mean a few different things. When we started venture capital investing 20 years ago, fintech meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And a lot of people thought fintech was serving the high net worth area. So there are very successful companies like um, Fidelity Investments, for example, which you know has a lot of high net worth customers. And, and we said, you know, we want to make things a little bit more accessible to the average person or even somebody below the median income. And similarly, on a B2B focus, we want to uh, focus on small businesses as well. So not every company that we invest in 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 the last 20 years adheres to this, but for the most part, our companies are focused on the mass markets. So it's people that maybe can't get top-tier service because individualized person-to-person services cost a lot of money. So if you were to go to Morgan Stanley and you have a $50 million personal net worth, you're going to get very good individualized service. But if you have $5,000 to invest, you can't get the personalized service. You need to rely on technology. So that's why companies like Robinhood today service the mass market through technology. So we invested in a whole host of companies that we think had fair financial products and services at fair prices to the mass market. And you know we brought debit cards to a population that didn't really have any type of credit or debit card. We've brought low-cost insurance to people that have never bought insurance before, debit cards to college students through a company called Hire One, which really hadn't been done before. So we have a whole history of that. So that's a big part of our financial inclusion. Then the second part of your question is trying to encourage underrepresented groups at both portfolio companies and in the industry. So my partner and my firm, Rick Vitone, he's Hispanic. It's very important to have a person of color as a senior partner at a venture capital firm. That's very unusual, unfortunately, at VC firms. And then likewise, we look for entrepreneurs that are underrepresented. So we have a very good record of investing in female-led firms, uh, persons of color firms. So that's, that's important to our values as well. And that's 
there's always room for improvement and we could improve more, but it's just a, you know, it's one of our principles that we uh, take into account in everything we do. So definitely sounds like you're looking for companies that are democratizing access to services that were previously only available to maybe more, you know, to the wealthy or exclusive groups. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you want that angle to target the underrepresented populations. What other common trades and maybe digging a little bit deeper in the, in the teams that you invest in, what, yeah. what are some of the common trades that you find amongst your portfolio companies? Well, you know, we have 20 years of data, so we know a lot about what works and what doesn't. And I have to say that our portfolio successes have been inverse related to the age of the founder. So we've had more success with young founders than older founders. And we still invest in companies that founded by people of all ages. But just to give you a data point, one of the things that I care deeply about is to make sure that that young people, you know, re- really get a fair share of consideration and, and not be dismissed because they're too young. And, and, you know, with the success of Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook and others, I think the world has, eyes have opened up that young people can form and grow companies successfully. But still, there's uh, still, I think, too much of an emphasis on experience and not enough emphasis on taking risks, having new perspectives, disrupting markets. So that's what we like to look for, people that, people that can take risks and want to change their industry. That's very interesting, particularly not just at Wharton through classes, but in general, a lot of the studies tend to prefer more mature founders, right? right. Why do you think your portfolio companies led by young founders have been more successful? I think experience is generally overrated and you can learn a lot working at something for a year or two or three years. You don't really need 30 years to be an expert at something. And if you look at other areas where merit is the most important criteria, so you look at um, games of skill like chess, the the best chess players in the world are in their 20s. For example, you don't have to have 30 years of experience or 40 years of experience doing something to be the best in the world. So I think that um, we like uh, entrepreneurs with a fresh perspective, and they can have all ages, but if they really have the drive and ambition, I think that's very important. And then I encourage, you know, I encourage young people that want to be entrepreneurs to go out and, and take a risk. It's much easier to do uh, when you're younger stage than older in your career. Andy, something that I like about IA is the fact that not only do you invest in companies, but you also have a history of incubating some successful startups. Can you talk about this? Yeah, we do. For the most part, we invest in companies that are already post-revenue, have a couple million dollars of revenue, have customers. But occasionally, we'll see an opportunity that nobody is focused on. And the nice thing is we see just about everything in fintech and insuretech, and we'll know if an area is being overlooked. And there we'll try to put together a team and spend the dollars that are required just to take a company from inception through a seed round. And we'll incubate it and our whole team will spend, not become employees of the startup company, but help them out and try to get it going. And we only do one of those at a time. And it takes a couple of years probably to to incubate something at a point where it's ready to have outside capital. But we have a very good track record of it. So just very quickly... 
We took a, an insurance company called Annuity and Life Re 20 years ago from nothing to an IPO, and it reached a high market cap of a billion dollars. We started a Homeowners of America property insurer in Texas from nothing. Today, it writes about $250 million a year of revenue. We started Credibility Capital, which is a small business lender based in Newark that's put to work over $150 million. We started Boost Insurance, an insurtech high-profile company that does platform-as-a-service insurtech. And our latest one is called Marble, and it's focused on loyalty rewards in the insurance sector. So five companies over our 20-year history. So we don't do it very frequently, but very proud of, uh, of what we've done. I think that those companies wouldn't exist if it weren't for IA, which is not really the case of the VC investments we make. Most companies we invest in probably would have gotten money from somewhere else if we hadn't invested. Yeah. So it sounds like you don't have necessarily a venture studio program but you do it opportunistically as you move forward. Now, so clearly you're adding value to these companies. How about the value add that you aim to provide for the rest of your portfolio, those that you're not incubating? Yeah, I mean, we work closely with entrepreneurs. It's part of our pitch, right? So we're sector experts. I don't really know anything about energy or materials or airlines or any of these other business lines. We know fintech and insurtech, and we really try to help the entrepreneurs within the industry. So we like to lead rounds. So large majority of the investments we've made, we've led the rounds. We usually take board seats and we're hands-on type of investors. There's another approach that other VCs take, and that's spreading it around a lot and making 50, 100 different investments out of a single fund. And those firms really don't have the time to spend with any one particular company. So we take a different approach. We'll have 10 or 12 investments per fund, and most of them will be on the board and will really take time and effort to help the companies. We don't get in the way of management. We're not involved in the day-to-day activities, but on the important decisions, opening doors, making connections, we try to do that as well as anybody within fintech. So is that roughly three to five investments per year? We're, We're up to making about seven or so new investments per year. We've just been around a long time too, so we'll exit a bunch in a year as well. Got it. Andy, we are talking remotely now, and we're obviously, there's a big elephant in the room, and that is the COVID crisis that really has spared no one. How has it impacted your portfolio and how, also on the other side, how have you managed this with your LPs? A few of our portfolio companies have been adversely affected. We have a a company called Protect, which does live event insurance. And of course, there are no stadiums are not getting filled up these days so that they've been hurt. But for the most part, our companies are doing quite well this year. We invest in digital solutions, not face-to-face solutions. And the whole world is accelerated and everything digital. So especially in the insurance world, Any type of company that has a digital solution that can replace a face-to-face interaction is really getting a lot of attention. So we have a lot of those in our portfolio. And the broader tech markets are are doing fine, right? I mean, the public tech companies are at or close to all-time highs. So we're benefiting from, I think, a pretty strong market. And I think a lot of 
behaviors have changed permanently. I think once COVID is under control, I think people are going to continue to use digital solutions. My mother, for example, has uh, gotten quite good at buying things over the internet, but she's forced to this year. And and that's, um, I think those activities are going to continue. So it's been a pretty good year. It's a little harder to make investments remotely when you haven't visited a company's headquarters or sat down face-to-face with an entrepreneur. But we've been so active in the sector for many years that there are just so many entrepreneurs that we've met previously in person. So a lot of our investments of the last six months have been people that we've met with uh, in person previously. But the whole world is adapting to doing things over Zoom. So uh, we're just part of that. How about the relationship with the LPs? How did you navigate that throughout the crisis? I was fortunate in in January, February, I did a a bunch of trips and visited a lot of my LPs in person. So I have had in-person meetings with them at the beginning of 2020, which is fortunate, but we do like to have more in-person meetings, but you know, they're all working remotely too. They understand that it has to be done remotely. So the existing LPs I think are fine. Fundraising for a new fund is difficult for every firm these days because you know, you really do want to have that in-person connection when you're meeting a, a new LP. But I think overall, the industry has adapted quite well. So, you know, there are so many other industries that are just crushed by COVID. I don't think the venture capital uh, industry has anything to complain about. It seems to be working quite well uh, remotely. It's actually um, arguably a good time to to have dry powder, right? It is, it is. And so, and the how about the road ahead for IA? How do you envision the next, I guess you've been over two decades yeah. uh, with the company. How do you envision the next two decades? That's a great question. I mean, we see opportunities in fintech, in particular in tech, for the foreseeable future. I don't know about two decades, but we think about the next five years a lot when we make an investment because our average holding period historically about four and a half, five years. So, you know, we try to think what's the world going to be like five years from now when we're ready to sell a portfolio company. And we think there's just a lot of room to grow. For insure tech industry, it's going to get bigger. More products, insurance products are going to get sold through online channels, less through face-to-face. There's still a lot of insurance and financial services that's sold through a broker you meet at the country club or some other social gathering. And that's going to slowly change, right? So every every year, the amount of sales that happen through digital channels is going to go up and the amount that's going to happen through face-to-face is going to go down. But that still has a long way to run. So we're happy in, in the sector that we're in. But then other areas of financial services, fintech, can be a little cyclical. So you know, depending on interest rates or other levels, alternative lending might be attractive one year and less attractive the next year. So those are things that we largely try to stay away from. We try to look for investments that are immune to or less uh, sensitive to any one macroeconomic factor. I know you are U.S. focused, but this is a very global podcast, and we've actually had insurtechs from around the world join the show. Are you also considering increasing your international exposure? Right. So we're predominantly North America today. So that includes Canada, includes Bermuda, which is an insurance center. But we are looking um, 
particularly in, in the UK, London is a big insurance market. So we will focus on there in the next year. But financial services insurance is so regulatory sensitive that each country in the world has different regulatory regimes. Even insurance is regulated by the state. So each of the 50 states has different regulations. So we pride ourselves on being experts in North America. And I don't think for the foreseeable future, we're going to make an investment in the developing world. We're just not set up and experts on it. Got it. Focus on your strengths. Yeah, focus on what we know, right? And we have a lot of experience with. Andy, uh, this has been very, very nice. Uh, Before we go, we always like to ask all of our guests about how they spend some of their time outside of work. I, I usually say outside of the office, but this time your home is your office, I guess. So outside of work hours. Um, my house is uh, kind of in the country in Connecticut, and I've been very active this year with appropriate social distancing, but you know, biking and running and swimming on it. But also uh, a lot of uh, internet gaming is very popular in 2020. And so I've been doing a little of that. I play chess over the internet. But I think that's a similar story to fintech in that people are cooped up in their homes all year. They're playing more games, but they're also uh, engaging more with uh, fintech and insurtech companies. Andy, this has been really a treat. Thank you for stopping by. Wharton definitely misses you. So once (laughs) this is all over, you're invited and encouraged to stop by uh, campus. That's great. Thank you, Miguel. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 